this is Jacqueline Tossadale, Chief Executive at St George's Hospital in Tooting. You are listening to the HSJ Health Check Podcast. Hello and welcome to our new HSJ Health Check podcast. Each week we're going to gather a cast from our team of expert journalists to explain and debate the most important news issues right now in NHS policy and leadership. HSJ Health Check, to be published each Friday morning, will bring you a uniquely up-to-the-minute, robust and informed analysis. Our objective is to give you more insight into the often contentious issues and debates lying behind HSJ coverage and to bring that coverage to a wider listening audience. We'll be available each Friday on the hsj.co.uk website and across all the main podcast channels. I'm Dave West, HSJ's Deputy Editor, and this week I'm joined by one of our core HSJ Health Check podcast team, Ben Clover, HSJ Bureau Chief for Efficiency and Performance, and also by Rebecca Thomas, our mental health correspondent. Each week we'll tackle two or three big questions from the week's news. And today, in our 30 minutes or so of podcasting, we're going to ask, firstly, why is there a care quality crisis in inpatient mental health and learning disability services? Secondly, do we need to redefine what success means for an NHS chief executive? And thirdly, what's the point of the new NHS legislation proposals? And firstly, Rebecca, we're going to start with with inpatient mental health and LD. You've written a lot over the past year about emerging serious concerns about the, the quality of these services. And this week, that's been made official, in a sense, by the Care Quality Commission publishing its annual State of Care report, which has underlined the seriousness of some of these concerns and recorded um, it, it, substantial year-on-year increases in the proportion of these services rated inadequate or rated um, requires improvement. Um Clearly, it's a serious, um, hugely um, horrendous issue for, for the residents of these of these units and and for their families. Um, often services, um, often but not always, services commissioned by the NHS. Um, what, what? How do you think we've got to this situation? Difficult question to answer completely. I mean, the trickle of stories we've had over the last year or so. Uh, I mean, the CQC state of care report wasn't an entirely massive surprise. We've had a trickle of really badly. Um, run services uh, rated inadequate um it's hard to pin down a lot of it perhaps seems to be um around staffing uh not just staffing levels we know that's a big problem for everybody but governance how do you how are these inpatient units ensuring that their staff have the right skills to deal with people really complex conditions and a range of complex conditions because we'll have units that don't just cater for people with complex personality disorder or, or complex uh, psychosis. They've all got to deal with a range of, of complex conditions. Do you? I'm, I'm always slightly suspicious when these things uh, arise, and as you say, it's not a, it's not really a great surprise, and it, suddenly there's a sort of a, an almost um, conspiracy among among people and commentators of, of saying, oh, what a, what, a great, what a great surprise, there's such problems in these services, and it's, we declare a crisis and, and hold a review. Um, do you, does it, is your sense that this is, a, this is genuinely a new problem or something that's, that's got a lot worse over the past? Last 12 months or, or not? Well, there's obviously the element of demand that is almost definitely going up. Um, whether we've got more demand and specifically people needing inpatient services, I don't quite, I don't think that's quite clarified yet. But 
and honestly, that honestly, this was a if we're calling it a crisis now, it was a long time coming, and perhaps just unnoticed before. I mean, mental health in the last five years has had an increasingly bigger spotlight. Yeah, that's not to say these um, poor units didn't uh, didn't occur five years ago. We know mm-hmm. they did. Mm, yeah, it's often uh, often the, with these things, it's a, a combination of things getting a bit worse and and a, a, and a growing sense in society that it's not acceptable anymore, isn't it? I think. But it does seem like a, a clear spate. Like over the past year or so, it seems like there's been like a story a week um, of like from the Care Quality Commission saying we have put this place in special measures. We've rated this place inadequate, and it's almost always uh, it seems like a privately run. Facility, and we're talking about this outside. It's the it's a surprisingly large amount of money the NHS spends on this, isn't it? It's kind of you, you're saying like total mental health spend publicly funded in the NHS is about twelve billion. Yes, around that. And and the privately run inpatient services are are one point eight, I believe. So it's a fair old chunk of NHS funding going to going into this market, which is run by. Kind of three private companies, largely, right? Kind of largely hold the market share. Yeah, they've got more. So, kind of Signet, Priory, and there's there's another one. Uh, the Elysium. Elysium, right? Oh, and kind of. So yeah, it's it's interesting to to debate whether kind of staffing issues affect everyone. Don't know, clearly, every, everyone has this problem, um, but there's been more focus on safe staffing across the NHS or NHS funded services, which these are. Um, recently, plus the the ever growing demand, but it's but there's fundamentally a lack of in, inpatient capacity in NHS services. Is that, is that fair to well, say? That comes down to it, and that's why, particularly in mental health, why we have the independent sector um, having such a big presence. Um, I don't think that is. I mean, you'll know this better, but I don't think that's matched in acute services. Oh no, there are much smaller proportions. So kind of, I think the private um, the private acute uh, hospital turnover so both doing NHS work and privately funded work is about five billion um, but that's compared to a sort of NHS kind of acute run sector of more like 45 so it's kind of it's more like a, a, a tenth mm-hmm. whereas sort of the, the total NHS mental health inpatients but I mean is it fair to say that kind of private companies do the majority of inpatient uh, care for for NHS funded services. I would say the super specialist stuff. So um, the secure units, for example, they have a huge presence in uh, medium um, and low secure units. It is something a point. Uh, it's an interesting point someone made to to me and Rebecca at, uh, earlier this week. I think or the end of last week was. Um, about the fact that the the, they, the private sector is also dominant in these services in the other UK nations, so nations which have have, have been dominated by um, you know uh, left wing or centre left governments for for quite some time, and taken a generally very um, antithetical view to competition and private sector in the NHS. Still, completely these sorts of services are still completely dominated by the independent sector, without you know apparently too much of an eyelid being uh, uh, lifted. And it's interesting, like why this came to be, and it might be that as uh, devolved nations. So that's not what they're called, but I mean, like, so the nations with devolved health authorities, kind of Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, they probably were subject to the same health secretary back in the 60s who who sort of moved. It's been a long term trend over decades to try and get more care done in the community and less uh, in, in inpatient units. So it used to be that kind of most care, mental health care, which often wasn't that caring was delivered in an inpatient setting and it was actually Enoch Powell uh, as a health secretary who said 
we've got to move away from an attachment to to kind of bricks and mortar and and to do more more care and probably like more compassionate care in the community. I don't know if anyone's ever done their PhD to actually track. All right, let's let's track it exactly which hospital got sold off at which point. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if like most of these privately run units kind of operate out of stuff at the out facilities that the NHS used to run uh, and sold off sometime in the 80s or 90s or probably a lot of them are flats and, and do you think you know we, we saw um last week uh, simon stevens uh, of, of nhs england perhaps sort of getting the defense in early but it suggested the nhs could get back into he should be getting back and growing capacity in these kind of services do you think that's plausible or you know it, it takes time to build these things anyway does it is there is there a way around that well, it takes time to it, of course it takes time to build things but presumably they've got the projections for like growth required the same way that um you know these big American-owned firms would uh, would have ideas of of what sort of market they're going to see in the future. Because at the moment, it's just uh, you know like I think Rebecca you were saying the other day, kind of even the private sector uh, thinks it's going to run out of capacity so, fairly soon. Yeah, I mean at least twice in the last year, uh, I've been told at some point um, trust couldn't uh, can put some couldn't put a patient in. In a, in a private sector bed because the private sector had run out of capacity. I found that very surprising. Yeah, and then these people with like a profit motive to do it. So it'd be interesting to see if they actually invest in the facilities. Traditionally, that's not what uh, private firms operating in the NHS have, have enjoyed doing. But yeah, it would be, there is apparently more capital funding coming down the line. Like maybe it would be, maybe it'd be an interesting use of that of instead of building something instead of refurbishing uh, some acute hospital roof somewhere you actually kind of went all right we're gonna have a an NHS owned and operated and staffed at properly compliant levels uh, inpatient unit that the, the business case almost writes itself really because these are hugely expensive payments kind of like trusts like South London Maudsley would routinely spend like 10% of their budget uh, or similar sums just on shipping people off to Signal or Priory run places. I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't know if anyone's feeling particularly conspiracy minded, but it would almost, it would almost make <laughs> sense for a, if you're going to get, the, the private sector's got all these assets, um, they're not being staffed properly, that's not allowed. Kind of, if they continually got inspected and found to be inadequate uh, to the point where, services could be removed or commissioners were going to go well we can't we can't in good conscience send patients somewhere uh somewhere that has these safety concerns over and over then eventually probably the private sector will have to exit some of those positions and then i guess the nhs could buy them but then you know there's probably a court case in that there we go the big know. machiavellian plan there to you go. repatriate that's the, that's a the cqc has been set on <laughs> the hard-working private sector in order to to realise cheaper. That's cheaper what Simon Stevens was referring to. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's what he said with his eyes. <laughs> We've yeah. solved it. Um, so, Rebecca, I mean, on, on, on that note about the, uh, the, the, the about NHS England, the, the, perhaps because of the way these services are regulated or because of the nature of the providers, there has been, um, in all this kind of coverage, a lot of focus on the on failures in the provider sector. Um, but it's clearly uh, an issue for the, the buyers and planners of care as well, who are a sort of slightly complex mixture. Um, of, of NHS England, local NHS commissioners, local government commissioners. Um, what do you what do you think the role of commissioners is is now? Now this sort of severity of this problem is being realised. 
Well, perhaps perhaps as an issue, this uh, new task force led by the Children's Commissioner can look into, and I would say probably should look into, but um, I, I question how, for example, scandals like Walton Hall get to the stage where they are a, they are a surprise. So there needs to be a question fairly over at what stage uh, do commissioners become aware of the services they're paying for um, and how often are they looking, particularly in, for example, inpatient, um, private inpatient services. They're very expensive. So this is a big chunk of money commissioners are paying for. Mm. But they're not as expensive perhaps as, as what the experience with the, the transforming care programme seems to be, that um, which the, the default response of, of commissioners or planners in this context is, well, these are terrible places, let's get people to live in a much happier way somewhere else. Um, but the experience, you know, you, you, you tell me about the experience with transforming care that seems to be that in a, too many cases it's actually so expensive or so difficult to um, to bring that about that it's that it's, it's not it's failed to happen in the way that the NHS. Well, it's interesting with transforming care. I had a lot of conversations. There currently isn't the market for the for the community placements and the community houses we need and perhaps that is a failure of transforming care. It didn't market. You mean being provided to you providers, who arrange that? Yeah, providers mm. have actually provide these uh, these housing placements so that there currently isn't the market there to meet demand. So by default, people are staying within inpatient units. And we know we know from the numbers that... Perhaps a question about how do they unlock and, and, and incentivise that, the, the market or providers or whoever needs to be involved to actually provide those places and, and probably fund them properly. Yeah, um, interesting. Somebody, uh, a lawyer said to me recently... Uh, the market will invest in those community places if it thinks it's profitable. So if you can't do these, these, uh, if you can't uh, build these homes, for example, at scale, it's not profitable for them perhaps to invest in it. So where does NHS provision lie? So kind of like the, the role of the commissioner in kind of inpatient mental health and I guess to a lesser extent LD services sort of exposes the the, the sort of myth that commissioning has become in some ways in that you go, oh, uh, hmm, us as commissioners are buying services on behalf of the people of Luton or the people of people of England. Uh, so, hmm, and I've received disturbing information about one of the, one of the vendors that we have selected. Um, so what do we do? Uh, well, we have no choice but to send them to there anyway. We didn't want to send them to, to an expensive inpatient unit anyway. We had no choice. There is so, no alternative. So kind of the, the role of the market, of even of commissioning there, is you could say, oh, we're going to take a, a harder line on making sure places are staffed properly. What does that mean? Kind of people exit the market? Mm. Maybe. Kind of, but they've been trying to change the reshape the nature of services by moving, you know, many many people uh, out of those kind of services altogether. You know, the CQCs, as the CEOs understand it, CQCs official line is these services should not exist. It is not the right way. Oh, so to- I was talking about mental health rather than um, rather than LD services. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, the LD services have been a sort of long running. Thing to try and move people All off. Right, well, there's some interesting ones to pick up in future there, I'm, I'm sure, as well. And um, let's move on now to our to our second question for today, um, which is um, whether do we need to redefine what success means for NHS chief executives? And this relates to, to a point made um, in, in HSJ this week in a comment piece by Sarah Jane Marsh um, of, of Birmingham Women's and Children's FT. Um, arguing um, that the a point about the, the reputation of NHS chief executives and, and NHS trust and how this is judged. Um, 
Sarah, as Jane, has argued that there needs to be a rethink of, of what's judged as success and highlights her experience of a few years ago um, in Birmingham taking on, um, at a similar sort of time, the coordination of children's and young people's mental health services um, for that area and merging a, a trust at the time, the Children's Trust, with the Women's Trust, um, for, uh, which had had a number of serious problems, um, and that that has, um, perhaps in the process, knocked the reputation of, of the Trust and herself. Um, she argues um, that that this needs to be re- uh, re- rewarded in chief execs taking on these kind of difficult challenges, and and it reflects an issue that we hear we hear quite often um, um, uh, these days about the need for chief execs to s- step out beyond their own organisation and help their system, help their neighbours, help other failing organisations in the way that that perhaps was expected um, along in in days of yore in the NHS before things were more were more market and, and organisation focused. We've also this week um, seen um, seen a second outstanding rating for Northumbria Foundation Trust, and I think we're we're expecting another one soon. Where in an example where um, where the chief exec of, of a successful trust has has reached out and done something else. In the case of Jim Mackey from Northumbria, has actually gone to run the regulator for a uh, NHS improvement for for a couple of years or so, um, and and um, and in a sense have been rewarded for that in some way. But I mean, do you do you think there's a problem here, Ben, with with chief execs being sort of unfairly marked down for for doing these sorts of things i think it's always a really uh complex set of factors like locally and nationally on it i mean i wanted to make the point um something alistair picked up from one of his conversations with hunts that um jeremy hunt when he was sort of redesigning the way the the care quality commission was going to work with uh with trusts or work at trusts um he said kind of he wanted to make make more parallels with what michael gover done with Ofsted and he, he made the point that if you wanted to make your name for yourself as a head teacher in the education sector you you did that by approaching a real challenge take, taking a real tough school and, and turning it round um, not by sort of sitting pretty on a sort of a, a leafier place with 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 good results uh, and he wanted a similar similar thing for the NHS um, for the NHS kind of trust leadership sector specifically I think it's fair to say that hasn't entirely come to pass. It certainly hasn't like left a left a, a strong residue, but survived him because because as much as you might want to encourage that, there's also pressure uh, on on leaders of organisations to deliver. So I mean, this is the same health secretary that quite publicly moved on to hospital chief executives because of problems with their. A and E results, and these were both chief executives who'd who'd very much moved to um, troubled patches. So, like uh, when Libby McManus took over at, uh, at North Middlesex, that was a place with serious problems and quite regular front page headlines uh, in its A and E. You know, kind of East Kent had had significant problems when Matthew Kershaw went there, uh, and the sense that neither of them got uh, quite the the support they could have asked for. In yeah, fact, I spoke to a um, uh, people from a headhunting firm who said, oh yeah, bo- bo- those two sackings, those two movings on, uh, basically killed the market for people willing to go and do kind of tough, um, not interim jobs, but kind of turnaround jobs. Yeah, because before, oh, what's the point if I'm going to have 
the rug pulled. It seems very case to case. I mean, if you if you feel sort of one of the, it seems that some people seem to rise above it and and do take on double difficult jobs and they are rewarded with knighthoods etc. And and that's something that, that Jeremy Hunt raised, I think, about wanting to to kind of dish out the the, the honours for for these kind of people. people yeah. Whereas it's kind of a second, a sort of another tier where it goes it goes very much unrewarded. Well, I mean, it's it's difficult. I mean, any <laughs> I spoke to one. Uh, trust chief executive before he was uh, ennobled ennobled? I don't know that's right before he was made um, before he met the Queen yeah uh, and I said so as talk you're going to take over a famous famously troubled organisation nearby you and he said I'm not taking over that organisation until an accountant I have paid tells me it will work out um, and he didn't and that's sort of the behaviour that, in a sense, Sarah Jane's trying to second guess. I suppose, or, you know, arguably, I mean, nothing wrong with doing the due diligence, but um, but the case is actually you've got to you've got to kind of stick your neck out and take these well, risks. You, you to, well, I think you kind of sort of have to get the assurance before you stick your neck out because he then got a like a locally famous good deal of long running central support in order to take it over, and, uh, and you know, and he's he's gone on to um, to higher positions in line. But it's not it's not all, you know, for every. For every ca- case like King's taking over the Princess Royal and Bromley has, you know, famously been quite bad for that trust, although it had problems anyway, and for the leadership there, you know, there there are other examples kind of mm. of it going well. I would say there something about the article that I struggled with slightly because I think it's a slightly... You know, we should say, but from the mental health point of view and, and West Midlands point of view, you know something about, about the, the example there. Something, yes. I have a, a rough overview in my uh, reporting. But so forward-thinking Birmingham, um, when it was launched, it was very troubled. And that's it's, it's not a case of uh, the trust having taken over an inadequate service. That service didn't exist before. Uh, so there are questions around, was... Was due diligence done? There are still problems within the service that perhaps aren't. What difficult. happened? There was a sort of, you know, do you know that detail? There was there was a sort of recommissioning and a, a repackaging of the of the children's and young people's mental health service. Yeah, it was a new model of care essentially. That um, the basis was it went from it went to zero to twenty five. So we'll see a lot of other places that will be trying to do these services in the future. This was one of the first pilots of its kind, um, which we know had some very clear problems was rated inadequate at the beginning um, there are still some clear problems with the service so I think that's a very different issue to um, uh, for example uh, I was talking when I did this an interview with Paula Clark who was former CEO of UH&M UH&M is probably one of the toughest jobs mm, North Midlands yeah yeah sorry yeah. probably one of the toughest jobs in the in the sector would you say Ben um, yeah, yeah. Um, and she said during that interview uh, from a regulator point of view, there there isn't really that you're treated tougher if you're taking over a basket case than if you if you taken over a, a good yeah. trust. Incredible how 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 sometimes the goodwill can be so short lived yeah. um, in those situations. But the point is that's a very different situation from launching a new model of care and it not working out. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, do you, I mean, I sense uh, what I, I heard. Um, 
someone involved closely setting up one of the new NHSEI regions coming newly into a new into these sort of regional jobs um, for the regulators um, who who kind of came in and said one of the things that struck them was there was no sort of pipeline management of leadership um, no, you know whether it be chairs or chief execs there was sort of no idea of well we've got this um, you know real problem trust or even a successful trust who's in, in, in there's interims or there's clearly going to be a change in leadership soon who might who might take that on and um what strikes me in some of these cases, and I think it has, um, in fairness, been recognised by some of the sort of people plan work uh, Dido Harding, the NHSI chair, doing about saying this has sort of been a kind of failure of basic, whether it's regional, national kind of um, line management, HR coordination of chief execs and senior senior management to actually put people in jobs that they can plausibly do um, and or put them in, you know, put them in hard jobs if they can plausibly do it, put them in hard jobs and recognise, you know, at least semi-formally that it is a hard job and you'll get, you know, how, how long will you get what are the kind of terms of, uh, of expectation of turnaround here uh, rather than doing things on a substantially more ad hoc basis that has been been one or two cases I think um, I think it happened in in um, Brighton not so not so long ago where a chief exec was put in and lasted you know a very very short space of time because it just didn't didn't seem to have been thought through um, but um, I mean Ben you touched on the sort of uh, with the experience of that uh, the, the take of that um, senior acute trust chief about about takeovers and stuff you know one of the results of this um, concern is that very little um, kind of m is, is is actually going on or has gone over over the last year or so um, uh, do you think um, do you think that is a sort of a known problem? Where do you think we are on this this what's sort of an issue over many years about about um, you know what some people were thinking that we need to go down from two hundred and fifty odd trusts to to you know one hundred or to you know twenty groups running the whole country? Where where are we on that? Well, it's 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 a sort of vexed question of exactly what that would do. I mean, there's the view in some parts of the country that kind of we just need less boards. Boards are expensive. A board of a trust costs about a million pounds a year. Kind of we can do away with that, and we'll get rid of um, people who might might ob- obstruct some regional reconfiguration plan that you that you'd planned. In practice, that's probably just going to to shift the problem somewhere else. You know, it's kind of. Yeah, it's kind of like it's not. It's not like those people weren't doing a job. It's kind of so instead of having a sort of instead of Trafford Hospital having its own board and its own medical director, it will just have its own hospital director, MD, who, and, cons- and medical consultants who will equally well uh, have views about what should happen. So the fundamentals might not might not change all that much. I mean, there, there is. I mean, there are kind of important governance differences, like one of which I came across the other day. So kind of so when you merge a lot of CCGs. Um, you, you do something quite different. You remove a kind of key barrier to using one specific bit of legislation. So when the failure regime got used in South London, uh, the the plan to close Lotion a and basically founded on this one legal point, which was that the all the CCGs in the area had to agree with it. So all of the CCGs in South London, apart from Lotion CCG, gave their assent, but then it couldn't go ahead essentially because Lotion CCG wouldn't have it. Once you have all the CCGs merged, um, then, and you've got like on the committee of that one CCG in the region, one representative from Lotion, one representative from all the other boroughs, Right, then they're just outvoting. Yeah, you're pooling. You're you're you're, 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 you're removing that level of mm. accountability from a local 
um, and that ability to say no to something from the local level, which I don't think has been properly understood. Well, it's yeah. you know we're kind of yeah moving on, um, and we will come on to talk about the sort of the the, the, the uh, legislation, which a lot of which pertains to that kind of uh, regional governance. But um, but yeah, coming on to, to to change of structures on the commissioning side, um, um, as you do, and uh, yeah, I think there's there has it has been slightly avoided the real the genuine often the real reason for bringing CCGs together is so that decisions can be made which at the moment can't be made there was um uh, the one of the directors in in Blackpool or in in, in Lancashire I think made this uh, perhaps um uh, slightly uh, with slight regrets but it made it made this clear in a piece in HSJ a few um a month or so ago and said well actually look there's just certain things we can't decide if we have to if we have to take it through every governing body um, yeah so we're going to get a less detailed less granular less obstructive potentially sort of system quite soon you know in the, within within the next year my question is and is is that, could that just be removed by having a single governing body uh, across the ccgs i mean do you do you need to merge them but if you've just got well, that single group got, of people there if you've got a single body you might as well merge them anyway and then you if, know, have to pay for less individual staff if the gp membership says, says yes as they yeah. didn't in staffordshire recently yeah, indeed. Yeah, it's going to get. Um, it's it's it's. They, I think there was a, an interesting committee on Tuesday. It seems um, commissioning committee looking at a whole raft of CCG merger proposals, um, and um, and I think that um, they have knocked back again. It, you do what's out this morning. It looks like they've knocked back the Shropshire and Telford and Rekin merger. Okay, partly on a probably a sort of bureaucratic basis of actually can you really do this in time for for next April, but possibly also a sort of are you all really on the same page here? Is there is there consensus? Um, so I think we're we're going to see a lot of a lot of that bubbling up. But let's I mean let's let's move on sort of on, uh, to talk about um, the third question that we that we um, had down for today, which which relates to this issue of you know what is the point of um, of the NHS um, legislation proposals which have been put forward in the Queen's speech. Um, um, on Monday, um, uh, you know, th there was actually a, a kind of a, a complex and mixture of, of legislation um, proposals put forward by the the current uh, government as 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 uh, as it as it is currently um, uh, on Monday, um, which covered a bunch of stuff that we won't all try and talk about all of that here. But if we if we focus on the NHS um, legislation that's been put forward by NHS England and done lots of engagement, talked to the Health Committee and so on. Um, um, have developed and consulted over the past year. Have developed a range of uh, of ideas, um, changing changing various things. I think probably crucially split down into two things. One, start a bit of stuff on the provider side and regulation about removing competition um, regulation and um, competition rules um, from which were substantially strengthened in the 2012 Health Act, binning a lot of that. The role of the competition and markets authority. Um, uh, which which we'll talk about in a sec. And on the other hand, on the other side, something more about this kind of system working and commissioning um, commissioning change, um, which is trying to make it easier for CCGs to work together and providers to work together with commissioners and people to delegate things back and forth so they can work in in a sort of uh, collaborative ways and to um, to allow, but um, you know, on the face of it, not force um, foundation trusts to to pull their decision making in that way and to say actually we are three or four independent foundation trusts. Um, but we cede our um, authority to a joint committee to, to make decisions of the kind that, that Ben might be talking about, about service change. Um, 
But, um, you know, I mean, I thought I'd come to you, Ben, first because of this on the provider side of this stuff about the competition and, and mergers. Um, one of the, the competition and mergers and, and um, the independence of foundation trusts and one of the bones of contention so far um, about um, about the legislation proposals has been the, the perceived threat to, to, to independence, perceived centralisation of authority with NHS England and NHS improvement. Um, and the specific one being that, that they are now have will un, would under these proposals have slightly strengthened have in in some people's views substantially strengthened powers to tell foundation trusts what they can or can't spend of their cash reserves um but there's a bunch of other stuff that people perceive as centralizing um nhs providers has sort of ultimately has supported this stuff but has found it difficult to um to get there and has, has been in lots of negotiation and, and discussions about refining the proposals um do you i mean do you see these these uh this sort of centralizing thing as as an issue for um for trust chief execs, FT chief execs. Um, again, it sort of depends on the on the chief execs, but sort of the tide went out on full autonomy a while ago, kind of for, for trusts. I mean, the, the idea that kind of the idea that each trust was an island in in sort of the Lansley paradise and would in fact activity its way out of trouble and would do do innovative private stuff and you know and all of that. Yeah, the tide went out on that idea like a, a little while ago. Sort of what, what it will come down to now is specific performance management things. So, I mean, at the moment, if uh, NHS IE really want to uh, replace your leadership, then you know you have to be in special measures, and then they can appoint your chair. Um, but in practice, there aren't the kind of the, the beasts that roamed the like the, the the Serengeti of provider land kind of even eight years ago aren't really there anymore. You've got to see which way the wind's blowing, haven't you, when you're in these kind of jobs. And actually, if you're out there competing and trying to trying to plough your own furrow, then you're, you're perhaps yeah. not going to be uh, and, and entirely successful. And who controls most of your income anyway? I mean, in a way, they don't have a choice about who they who they spend <laughs> spend Back their money the, with uh, in lots of cases. Question. But, you know, I mean, I don't want to understate it even. I don't want to make um, too much of a... Uh, a point of difference for FTs because you know it wasn't that long ago. In fact, we don't know yet how many because NHS England's always too embarrassed to say how many arbitrations slash expert determinations they did in eighteen nineteen. But that was always a key example of how not great integration was going. It was when you have kind of the CCG and the and its provider having to take one another to to internal court over five million quid's worth of invoices. Like that happened at Barking and they lost. But the trust lost. Um and you know, these these are deeply ingrained uh systems, like the current generation of of provider leadership. That's the system they grew up under. That's the system they've always worked under is uh you know, I'm, in lots of places it's more grown up than this, but in some places it hasn't been. It has been like, well look, we've done all this work. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna pay us for it. It's like we didn't ask you to do all this work. We're gonna hire a team of coders to check that you haven't overbuilt us. It's like, well, we're gonna hire a team of coders to to say that we have. And like, it's stuff that the public, rightly, understandably, only dimly understands. But if you do, this is probably why NHS England don't like to talk about it because if you do have to explain to people that there's an internal market, um, a quasi internal market in the NHS, and they go, what? Uh, and if you go, oh yeah, but um, but don't worry, it's one that they take quite seriously to the point where they 
can spend quite a lot of money arguing over money that isn't really real money anyway, but sort of uh, internal NHS money, and it can get quite ugly. So it'd be interesting to see if there's any expert determinations slash arbitrations last year and this year and in the future. Is the internal market still uh, rumbling on healthily, which actually we, we do see crop up in the news that we cover quite often, or, or, or actually is it, is it genuinely disappearing? Well, that would be a genuine test of uh, of how well all this integration joint working stuff is going. As I understand it, there's quite substantial regional variation. In the, there's a lot being made of um, tr- areas, trusts and commissioners moving off uh, payment by results, um, you know, per, per yeah. click of a turnstile tariff. But in, in, in actuality, there are some regions that have gone quite far down that road. There are some regions that have gone not very far down that road at all. And there are quite a lot of patches which try it for a year or two, realise it actually doesn't really work for either side and they're perfectly happy to move back to the to the old way. Uh, yeah, and you've got to remember why the old way was introduced in the first place. I remember speaking to one of the people who helped design like the modern tariff system and he said, well, I've got a block contract is just going, here's your budget hospital, please cope with ever-increasing demand of that. Um, in, in practice, you'll fall behind saying, oh, all right, well, maybe we want to incentivize the trust uh, to really gun down this waiting list, to, to use Jim Mackey's term. On the competition thing, um, you know, the removal of competition rules, which which is linked, of course, to, to the internal market. But the, um, one, this legislation actually isn't going to come into force for quite a long time, if at all. It's really important to underline, as we, we speak on Thursday with uh, Brexit um, negotiations hanging in the balance, um, at, which will, will also cause a sort of just feed into the fate of this of this and the the, um, the longevity of this government. Um, so we can't really expect all this to happen. But you know, Chief Executive, and I think this applies to mental health um, quite a lot. Rebecca, there are some um, some trusts, some Chief Executives that are really fed up with tendering. Um, stuff, you know, being on the end of kind of tenders, particularly of community health services stuff. Um, public health is the other example, although whether this legislation would affect that, I think it's probably pretty uncertain. Do do you, we think that people, uh, you know, trusts, incumbent providers are going to start to enjoy a reduced, um, you know, impact, re- reduced competitive tensions, um, you know, from now, you know, even without this legislation actually coming onto statute for uh, you know, at least two years or something like well, that? Well, they've already uh, been, there's already a kind of difficulty in no one likes to be seen to be suing the NHS like Virgin did it and they got quite a lot of stoke for it maybe they don't care but kind of but they got if I was their marketing person I would care and that's sort of a threat that's always been there is like oh how far are you actually going to push the legalities um, of these rules yeah, I think we're starting to have a sense we're starting to see more contracts being rolled over, um, you know, than they were before. It perhaps in anticipation of the actual rules being changed. But on the other hand, um, you know, Chief Executive's point of view, they're saying, well, you know, the, the, the government and the NHS England have said this should not be happening. You know, why is it still happening to me? Well, I mean, it can. Yeah, I mean, it might be a question, but by the time the legislation rolls through, it might be a bit moot anyway in that we're probably moving towards a situation like that for inpatient mental health services where you go we need the capacity <laughs> kind of it doesn't you know kind of i think a lot of the time when senior people are annoyed about the tendering process it's not even that they're annoyed about losing the tender to circle or something like that it's they're annoyed about losing the tender to northeast london foundation trust or something and they and that has ended up with some some odd situations and it's just it's a lot of effort 
it's a lot of money spent on mm. on lawyers. You can see people why people like why people are intrinsically against it. But but the uh, the alternative is a system where just these decisions are taken, mm. and it's quite uh, complicated. And, and um, it's going to be in a, in a world with fewer boards. There's going to be less scrutiny. You're going to have to replace it with quite a complicated system to make any of the decisions for anyway. Well, I mean, kind of, you know, what sort of a new ICS will kind of go, all right, uh, this one merged statutory body um, that also provides hospital services is going to provide all the community services as well. Maybe that makes sense. And also we're going to merge with the with the CCG. So, oh, we are, in fact, we're a de facto Scottish Health Board now. Like, well, what are the problems associated with that? There are a few. There are a few. Right, we've come to the end of our time. Thank you very much, Rebecca and Ben. Um, And thank you to everybody for giving our first HSJ Health Check podcast a go. We will be here again next week, published on Friday, to download on hsj.co.uk and to access across all the major podcasting channels, such as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud and the leading Android podcast apps. Uh, send us any suggestions for topics, issues you'd like us to, to cover. Um, you can find um, us on Twitter. My Twitter's at Dave W West or the email address you can, can find on the website or via my Twitter or whatever. Um, please spread the word widely and see you next week. Yeah.